Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, a Song of Ice and Fire episode 85, Jamie Six in a Storm of Swords. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as Lies and Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and liesandarborgold.com. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit or on the Maester Monthly Podcast. Maybe you know me as Arithmetric on Twitter. Hello. We're so excited because this is the episode. This is the romance. This is, I drop Eliana off at the airport. I drive away, but then suddenly I am reeked with passion in the pit of my stomach. And I turn my car around and I drive back and I get into the airport and I make out with her. That is what this episode is. But it's about Jamie and Brienne, not me and Eliana. I'm sorry. Yeah, no one should be at the airport right now. And we should not be making out. That yeah. is not. <laughs> that is not social distancing. Uh, we're a pro-social distancing podcast, so in this time we will stay socially distant in our very separate cities. But we are excited to be together tonight with you guys to talk about Jamie and Brienne with you all in a storm of swords. If you guys are our friends on Patreon.com. We do have a Patreon. If not, we still have episodes for you here, but we did do a special episode for patrons in our Stranger Tier and Above about Tyrosh last month in March. Yes. It was it was actually really fun. And not only do we talk we talk about an expansive amount of things about Tyrosh, right? Now we're not just talking about the city. We're talking about many things Tyroshi, including, of course. Snails? Actually, we do talk about snails a lot. I was actually telling... Wait, you weren't going to say snails? No, I wasn't going to say snails, but I was explaining snails to, uh, at some point, look out in your uh, feeds. Eventually, there will be a new Maester Monthly for you at some point in our lives. Uh, I was recording, of course, with um, Joe Magician and Bookshelf Stud, both of whom have been guests on here. And uh, explaining snails to them. Explaining the importance of the Tyroshi snail. But I was actually going to say Dario. Yes, Dario. You know, we had a very positive response to Dario, and I feel good about that. Because I feel like I've been a really motivating factor in that positive Dario response. I, I like Dario. You know, he's a dick, but like... I mean, we've seen my track record of what I like. I like Sandor. I like Dario. I like those characters. Also, Dario's character just works. You know, it makes sense. Like, I, I understand that people are like, ah, but he's not like Darkstar, you know? Darkstar's a failed... And after last episode, character. that was, like, doing that deep dive answered a lot. So check it out. That was our uh, 20th Patreon episode wow. about Tyrosh, affectionately named It's a Me, a Dario, Tyroshi, and more. And as we record this, along with it being our 20th Patreon episode, Chloe is coming up on her 20th birthday tomorrow oh my God. is what <laughs> i made that up it is in fact chloe's birthday but not since her 20th it's her 21st all over again no you know what it's okay yes i i, I turned an age this week by the time you guys are listening to this i will be that age Thank you. Thank you for your wishes, presently, before, after. Happy name day. They're, they're accepted. Uh, it's it's an age. Everybody's like, I'll, I'll, full disclosure, it was April 1st that I was born. So everybody's like, ooh, we should cancel April 1st this year. Ha ha ha, I'm original. And I'm like, whatever, I wish you fucking would. 
Well, <laughs> she fucking you're like, I'll, I'm going to stay the same age forever. So, this month's Patreon episode is going to be geared towards His Dark Materials, the other series that we are covering. If you guys aren't following us covering that, we are into the book, The Subtle Knife, the second book of the main trilogy of His Dark Materials. And this month on Patreon, we have decided that we are going to cover one of the uh, smaller side stories, the spinoff stories, called Once Upon a Time in the North. Came before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so keep up. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Um, settle down, boys. Men everywhere. Uprooting. Riding. Uh, Once Upon a Time in the North is covering a friendship unlike any other that Eliana and I, I think, are very excited to chronicle between Lee Scoresby and Yorick Burnison, the bear and the renegade. Yes, and we've talked about it a little as we've spoken about these characters in some of the other episodes, which, uh, you know, if you haven't started reading His Dark Materials, or maybe you already have and haven't listened to our episodes, you should do that. <laughs> I I was convinced I did it, and here we are doing a podcast on it. Yeah, so. here we are with Chloe knowing more about the series and having read more of it than me, <laughs> so it, it clearly it the was a good... The surpasses the master. Yeah, ne- next she has to kill me. <laughs> Then she's gonna become a Sith Lord. Happy birthday, Chloe. Hmm. <laughs> Best birthday ever. You guys, we did get a handful of emails, tweets of note, and we got this message from one of our friends, Nick, our patron, and it was about Loris Tyrell and Renly Baratheon, a rare pair to be discussed on Girls Gone Canon. Nick asks us about, um, you know, I have a question that I don't think is brought up much. I was just re-listening to your final Sansa Storm of Swords chapter. Wow, throwback. And you discuss how obviously fucked up the relationship between Sansa and Littlefinger is written. I have to ask about another relationship, though, Renly and Loras. Loras was knighted at 15 and was a squire for Renly for an undetermined amount of time before that. We know that some nobles, such as Doran and Barristan, often become squires at 9 or 10. You mentioned that Littlefinger's obviously taking advantage of a younger and more naive victim. Given that Renly is approximately 6 years Loras' elder, do you think we could apply the same rules to this situation? How old was Loras when their sexual relationship started, and should it be viewed as either coercion slash molestation? I would love to hear your opinions. You know... This is an interesting point. I've seen it discussed maybe one to two other times, and I do think there has to be a little bit of coercion involved. And with that, I mean, you can't say there isn't molestation to an extent, right? To be knighted at 15 means he had to have been there for like at least a year before. And 19 to 14 is still a large age gap for Loris having been that young. I imagine Loris was... And look at the family, right? Loris was probably sent to Storm's End under the guise of what you are to do as you are. Bid for Lord Renly, like for the good of her house. If you need to, you you need to do it. And look at Marjorie. She's not the only one being sold like cattle in this family. And we know very much that like sending children off to war to other houses is a political contract. It's not just marriages, but... I don't know to what extent it would be pushed from Renly as well. Do I think there was a direct dealing of, Renly can have sex with Loras whenever he wants, now we're famous and rich? No, I don't think it was that. I think it was just on the table as soon as they decided that Loras would go there. They probably hoped for it more than thought it was their only hope, if that makes sense. Like, I'd imagine Renly was probably 
lonely because when he was 19, that would have been 296 AC. Game of Thrones starts with Waymer Royce in 297. So Loris would have been 14 in 296 AC. And that's pretty much when Renly would have been named the Small Council. I don't think George has put quite as much thought into this as any of us are right now also, but the lover's stint would have to be a brief stint, like six months to one year to even happen. And I think it's also a little different as far as age gaps for grooming with Littlefinger and Sansa, because Littlefinger's whole thing isn't about Sansa, it's about her mom, right? It's like this weird revenge porn thing happening. For Renly, I think he just would have been lonely because his brothers were ignoring him, and he has that whole youngest child, my parents died on a ship drowning thing going on. Yeah, I yeah, I don't think George has put that much thought about it, into it. I, I, I don't think that we can say that there wasn't any grooming involved, right? I think more than anything, it speaks volumes about House Tyrell and probably what their legacy is going to reap, and so, no pun intended. Yeah, it's like an oh, interesting pun, um, but yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Nick, for the question, and let's roll into our lightning round, which is starting off with Tyrion V in A Storm of Swords. Tyrion is sent to greet the Dornish visitors to the capital, and it turns out they have a lot of work to do. Arya Seven, Arya lands in the hands of the Brotherhood Without Banners, who mean to ransom her to her mother. Brand Three. Bran's party stays at Queen's Crown during a storm of sorts, but the threat of other men mean he must use his skin-changing abilities for both bad and good. John 4. John must make a hard choice to save the realms of men and turns cloak once more from the free folk. <laughs> Daenerys 4. Daenerys meets a new ally who helps guarantee her success in Slaver's Bay. Oops. It's a me, a Dario. Arya eight. Arya is handed a basket full of mysteries from the Ghost of High Heart and also from Edric Dane. She is later captured by Sandra Clegane. And that brings us to our overview of Jamie Six in A Storm of Swords, which is, of course, I quote, "You want her? Go get her." So he did. Chef's <sighs> kiss. It's just like, this is a romantic chapter. I'm really glad to be doing this with you. On your birthday. I would come back for you <laughs> in a bear pit. In an uh, airport. <gasps> I would come to the airport and I would be like, wait, as you board at the gate, like I'd somehow get past security, even though that's not like real life. Yeah. <laughs> so time has passed. Jamie's arm is finally not infected. He thinks, Jamie was anxious to be gone, to put Harrenhal, the Bloody Mummers, and Brienne of Tarth all behind him. A real woman waited for him in the Red Keep. I'm going to come back to this way later when we're back at the bear pit, but hmm. hmm. Yeah, hmm. like, hmm, interesting, Jamie. The language of, like, the healing and the fever, right, and how, but at least we're saving the stump, it kind of makes me think, like, are we talking about Jamie's humanity and soul? A question in the universe that I'm putting out I think, there. 
I think we're always talking about Jamie's humanity and soul. True. Mariana, yeah, that's true. That's why we do this podcast. <laughs> Bolton had sent Kyburn along with the party, with Jamie's party, revealing Kyburn's hope to get his chain back. Jamie says if anyone can give Jamie his hand back, that person will be Grand Maester. Hmm. Hmm. So, no pun intended. On one hand, anyone who could, like, give Jamie his hand back, I'm just gonna say it, they would deserve to be Grand Maester. They seem like a very qualified person. <laughs> uh, it's like Ario's- Ario? Wow. <laughs> it's like Arya says to Barrick, you know, could you bring a man back? Just one who died once without a head? Like, not not more than that. Not seven like you, you greedy fuck. But Makoro? I know. I'm like, maybe, does Makoro qualify? I think so. He could do it. Look at Victorian. They saved that motherfucker. Yeah. Makoro for Grand Maester. Grand Maester Makoro has a good ring to it. I'm going to be real. We need Steel Shanks. <laughs> He's a sim- oh, Steel Shanks. Steel Shanks, the railway cat. He's a simple soldier. Oh my god. Steel Shanks is like an Animal Crossing villager name. Oh my god, you're right. But it's the name. So, so I say Steel Shanks in that song voice because there's a cat in the musical Cats named Skimble Shanks, and he's the railway cat. Oh <laughs> yes, yeah. That's why I sing it. I see. <laughs> no, you it don't. Also brought to mind, um, Thomas the Tank Engine. I see it because of the railway. I see it. Steel Shanks is a simple soldier and Jamie thinks he's much like uh, those other men that he's fought alongside men who will do anything that their lord commands they'll plunder post battle and then they'll be like whatever go home raise a family after it's all said and done and he's like I don't think that Steel Shanks really matches the cruelty of the brave companions he doesn't really fit in with them you know it's funny he says that because I don't think Sandor Clegane really fits in with the Lannisters but here we are here we are. Here we are. That's that's what I thought of. I thought of Sandor Clegane here when you think of that typical like outlaw knight. Yeah. And I guess Sandor also has the same thought. Throwing it out there. Yeah. I had these other thoughts here uh, how on like one side you know you could argue that Jamie was not so different from Steel Shanks following Lord's commands. It's just that uh, mm. the difference is that Jamie was so willing to follow Cersei's commands mostly when he knows what those commands are and what she wants. Like, he thinks in later chapters of how, like, Cersei had probably wanted for him to kill Arya for what happened to Joffrey that one day, but, you know, she never got those words out, so you didn't really have to think about that. And though Cersei didn't ask it, like, his willingness to just, like, kill Bran. But on mm. the flip side of all of that, like, of course Jamie's gonna judge a guy who, like, would do anything their lord commands that you know those people were like saying oh i'm just doing my job and that role of soldier mindlessly and then their ability to just like go home not thinking anything of it because they think it's just their job and raise a family do all the things that they're told they're supposed to do growing up because jamie you know he explicitly didn't do that when he was like no fuck that fuck my commands i'm gonna kill Ares." And, you know, he chose that hard road, even when his colleagues, like the other Kingsguard, were like, no, you should be more like people like Steel Shanks, because we are like Steel Shanks. We're going to just stand aside when injustice happens. Yeah, Jamie definitely sits there thinking humbly on this soldier, thinking, oh, he would do this, he would do this, but that's what he's doing. He's going home to Cersei. All he's thinking is, mm-hmm. I just have to get home to Cersei. 
Yeah, it's it's sad to see Jamie project on these fellow soldiers because he tries to cling on to this last bit of like noble status, right? Mm. That he is a Lannister, he is the son of Tywin, he he has this noble background that he can fall back on, but at the same time, he's just a soldier amidst a war. Yeah, that's why he kept thinking of himself as like a sword hand. It's not like flattering. Being the best sword hand only is like you're still a sword hand. Yeah. Yeah. So on their departure, Bolton asks Jamie if he will give his warm regards to Jamie's father. Jamie's like, yes, I will, as long as you bring my regards to Rob Stark. Rip. Interesting. What does that mean? Not not what uh, Bruce Bolton thought it meant. <laughs> We're to going be to honest. Wedding? God, it's going to be great. Oh my god. Winter is coming. Jamie gives his sweet goodbyes to the rest of his companions, promising he'll return to pay his debts. He wheels his horse to join Steel Shanks, Steel Shanks, and his merry two hundred men, dressed in knightly garb, shield, sword, chainmail. He dons a brown surcoat over all of it, not dumb enough to dress like Jamie Lannister, and he has a shield, by the way, that has the Lothston sigil on it, black bats on a field of silver slashed with gold. And if you recall, the Lostons had held Harrenhal before the Wents, but they died out, of course. And there's this awesome line. I think it just encompasses all of Jamie in this, but he would be no one's cousin, no one's enemy, no one's sworn sword, in sum, no one. So first off, the language here is, of course, like really reminiscent of what happens in Arya's storyline. Like, I don't know how you read like someone's no one. You don't think, oh, Arya. Um, And together, like, both of those kind of go to show that as Arya removes all those things, right, that identify her as a Stark She's, like, navigating what it means to be no one. And this idea of not having the Lannister garb, not wearing those garments so prominently, like, as though that makes him part of someone's family. That's what's identifying him. And I I think that's really what's going on with Jamie as he tries to become no one. Like, on the road at this moment, in this very moment. He's on, he's in limbo being no one. He's trying to find out, like... Who should Jamie Lannister actually be when he's not trying to fit the role of what everyone thinks Jamie Lannister is, or the role of Kingslayer, right? Of course. And then especially at the end of A Storm of Swords, there's so much in a story that's concerned with like, who is Jamie? Uh what does it mean being no one? And then of course being who he is now, which is all we've been talking about. Well, when there's nothing left to burn, you have to set yourself on fire. Whoa, don't right? do Aries' job for him. um no it's a great thing to look at for jamie too because like this whole time he's had this set of names set on him he's the kingslayer um oathbreaker you know all these different names that he's been set with so much that jamie finally can set aside all of his identity and now what's left that's the scariest part of it it reminds me a lot of Jon snow Mm. in a way who's Jon snow Oathbreaker, bastard. Damned. Damned. Yeah. Damn. I thought it was something to note about the Harrenhal history here. Uh, The Lothston line, which had ended, which history, the world of ice and fire, fire and blood, everything, whatever. Uh, I don't think it's actually in fire and blood. I'm sorry. I just got carried away with books. The world of ice and fire, the mystery night, chats about Danielle Lothston, Danielle Lothston, however you want to pronounce it, uh, 
she turned to dark arts and sorcery, which had caused the end of the Lothston line. And she ended up supporting Blood Raven. She was one of the river lords that did against the Blackfires in the Mystery Night. She rode forth in strength from her haunted towers at Harrenhal, clad in black armor that fit her like an iron glove. Her long red hair streaming, the light of the rising sun glittered off the points of five hundred lances and ten times as many spears. The Mystery Knight Something about Danelle's description here kind of reminds me of Rhaegar, especially with this fever dream, but here, a redhead, which is interesting also when you think about Danny's fever dream, right, of uh, the, the whites melting in her dream or the people mm. melting. There's also a family member that I think we might see in The Winds of Winter come up named John Lothston, who's in exile with the Golden Company. And so he could be a real Lothston, could be just some guy, but kind of makes sense for him to be real, right? An exiled lord. It'd be kind of interesting, too, if he were one of the Lothstons and part of the Golden Company, considering that Dandel supported a Blood Raven, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. That'd be... I, I I had never like really noticed that, so that's the bastard. Very cool. For now, though, anxiety strikes since they're taking the back roads, and Jamie just wants to get home to Cersei. Maybe even make it to his son's wedding, Joffrey's wedding, his son, nephew son. He tells Steelshanks the King's Road would be faster, and Steelshanks is like, "It's not safe." Jamie, getting you there safely is my goal. Jamie remembers the last time he came through here, the place where the miller's daughter had been. She had smiled at him shyly when he went long, long ago, and now that inn is covered in weeds. And the miller had actually told him, you're going the wrong way, the tourney's the other way, As and Jamie thinks, as if I had not known. I love that. I really did. Yeah. I thought that was just something to focus on, because it was just like kind of cute, like... You could just see Jamie out there on his white steed, kind of trotting, like, oh, I'm hot shit. Oh, I'm hot shit. Oh, I guess I'm no longer hot shit. But up till that point. Yeah. It's kind of like, it, it's an interesting, bitter yeah. opening to this. And we'll talk kind of about this framing in a minute, but Jamie wheeling about in his horse, chivalrous, finally gleaming in armor. Like, this is the biggest display of Jamie as a true knight, right? For that first time for us. But. It does quickly go to shit. King Ares made a great show of Jamie's investiture. He said his vows before the king's pavilion, kneeling on the green grass in white armor while half the realm looked on. When Sir Gerald Hightower laid the white cloak about his shoulders, a roar went up that Jamie still remembered all these years later. But that very night, Ares had turned sour declaring that he had no need of seven Kingsguard here at Harrenhal. Jamie was commanded to return to King's Landing to guard the queen and little Prince Viserys, who'd remained behind. Even when the White Bull offered to take that duty himself, so Jamie might compete in Lord Went's tourney, Ares had refused. He'll win no glory here, the king had said. He's mine now, not Tywin's. He'll serve as I see fit. I am the king. I rule, and he'll obey. That was the first time that Jamie understood. It was not skill with sword and lance that had won him his white cloak, nor any feats of valor he performed against the Kingswood Brotherhood. Ares had chosen him despite his father. 
to rob Lord Tywin of his heir. Even now, all these years later, the thought was bitter. And that day, as he'd ridden south in his new white cloak to guard an empty castle, it had been almost too much to stomach. He would have ripped the cloak off then and there if he could have, but it was too late. He had said the words whilst half the realm looked on and a king's guard served for life. Damned. Damned. Motherless. Actually, though. Mm-hmm. Literally. Also. Yeah. It's... We keep getting these, like, snippets of Jamie's life here, and a lot of what's here kind of comes back to what we were talking about of the commodification of Jamie uh, in the last episode. It's... There's that line of, like, Aries saying of Jamie, like, he's mine now, not Tywin's. It's the same way people seem to think of women, especially as they pass from one father, from their father, right, to another man's sort of, like, ownership and in marriage and even the scene right a cloak gets put about jamie's shoulders same as with the marriage ceremony and it is just like we see people like cersei wed and give up their entire life right i mean when cersei wed that was giving up her freedom for her that was her signing away her life that's the same thing as this king's guard cloak that was laid around his shoulders it was wedding him into that life yeah, and here he thought he he found a loophole. He's going to get to be with Cersei. <laughs> when she mm. does that, mm, that's mm. what happens when you... Should have listened to fate, kid. <laughs> Should have banged people who weren't your sister. She has a stomach. She has a back. <laughs> oh my god. I'm just saying. She has arms. There are better places you could have put oh, it afterward. Kyburn rides beside Jamie, inquiring after his hand, and Jamie thinks about what he wants to say in his feelings rather than answering aloud. He thinks it's a waking nightmare. He asks Jamie, though, if he enjoyed his visitor last night, and Jamie says, Oh, yeah, that girl. She didn't say who sent her. He's almost like, what? I had a visitor? And he's like, oh, yeah. Kyburn sent a girl named Pia, apparently, to Jamie to assist him. With some exercise. Uh, We know this girl actually from Arya's chapters, because Pia usually sees ghosts, aka men's penises, in the buttery. Very delicately done. Good job. Thank you. I said penises. Is that delicate? Yes. Is it? In Arya 2, in A Clash of Kings, there's this quote uh, about Pia... And as lords and ladies never noticed the little gray mice under their feet, Arya heard all sorts of secrets just by keeping her ears open as she went about her duties. Pretty Pia from the buttery was a slut who was working her way through every night in the castle. I get you, Pia. Rock on, you fellow slut. Good yeah, for good you. Good for her. Good for her. And she's like, you know, she's getting her... She was trying to get her goals, and I'm like, I respect that. I also only realize now that part of the joke of her being in the buttery is, uh... <laughs> The churning. I only just got that. The funniest thing ever is there's this line from Hot Pie, and he's like, Pia keeps saying she sees things in the buttery, and he's like, I think it's ghosts or something, and Arya's like, Pia's always seeing things in the buttery, mostly men. (laughs) I'm like, damn, Arya, settle down, you little slut shamer. Yeah. It'll be you someday, girl. She learns later on. 
you know, she she starts befriending people, getting more perspective on life. For now, though, Pia's slipping into Jamie's bedroom and out of her clothes very quickly. Jamie thought he was dreaming. He's like, this is, this is interesting. This girl's very skilled. Can't be real. She got into his bed and then he's like, oh, wait. No, this is real. <laughs> she told him that she saw him once when he came for Lord Went's tourney and that he was so handsome and a brave knight and that some nights she'd actually imagined that it was him in bed with her uh, instead of the other guys, never thinking that she'd actually have a chance with him. Yeah, this is... This was kind of sad, especially mm-hmm. when you consider Pia later. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm actually really excited to talk about her in A Feast for Crows, but we'll come back to that, obviously. But this chapter in general is framed with that first mention, what you said about the Miller's daughter earlier, on how Jamie remembered the day he was going to the tourney that was about to be the start of his whole universe, about his whole life, and he saw the Miller's daughter shyly smiling at him through these weeds. And he goes on with this really sad thought, now that this village is just, you know, just desecrated, right? It's just burnt down. And he's like, oh, well, everyone here is probably dead, and all the grandchildren are probably dead too, and... Pia is like this sense of like sudden light, right? Like she came to him reaffirming, you were a true knight and you were everything I based all of my sexual conquests on. Anytime I was working or doing anything, like I pretended it was you that was within me. Uh, You're the truest knight I ever saw. And then this chapter ends with Jamie choosing to be that chivalric knight finally, right? Like it ends Mm -hmm. with him saying, maybe I am good. Maybe I still am that boy that I once was, right? When I was knighted to the King's Garden. I think the framing of this is so smart by choosing to use Pia, who ends up this character of violence, you know, is committed against her awful violence. And I really do like this part of Jamie's character that Pia gets even a place in it. Yeah, and as you said, I'm excited to talk about what that role is like more in Feast. Uh, she becomes a big part of that, and honestly, it's it's quite horrible what happens to Pia. Like, incredibly so. Mm-hmm. Just very Awful. cruel. But for now, coming back to uh, these young girls' perceptions of Jamie, I kind of think of it as like it's this girlish version of how John perceived Jamie when he first saw him. For them, for the for these young girls, they're like, oh wow, a true knight, and and some sort of like sort of romantic interest. Whereas for John, he's like, oh, that's something to aspire to. That's what a king should look like. Yeah, there's a lot of John echoes. I feel like in this chapter with what he's going through, especially in a storm of swords. Yeah, that evening though, Jamie sends Pete away, reminding himself that he has a woman already. Because <laughs> who? You know, Jamie's really loyal. Actually, he is. He's incredibly romantically loyal to his twin sister. <laughs> Can't forget mm. it. Can Everyone's got to remember that. Um, it's real interesting. Jamie asked Kyburn if he often sent girls to the people that he leeches. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Kyburn admits, you know, Varko Hood once had an STD, so he actually does send girls to be checked by me. And Kyron's like, it may amuse you to know that Pia there is healthy. And your girlfriend from Tarth is too. Also, Brienne's a virgin. 
Jamie's like, what the fuck? Why? For the ransom? Like, why do you know this information? Does her father need to know that she's a maiden still? And Kyburn's like, hey, we've had a bird from Selwyn, from Tarth. He offered 300 gold dragons for Brienne's return, which is a totally honorable amount for a knight. The irony here, of course, that Brienne is a woman, merely a woman, may I add. Uh, and Jamie, a knight, has had some crazy trading around for, you know, young women. Barely woman, that that means they don't even count as real beings. But Kyburn then goes on saying that Vargo Hote wants sapphires. Good job, Jamie. And that Vargo will not listen to any of the truth about the sapphires' existence and that he's convinced Selwyn's trying to trick him. Jamie's like, saw that one coming. But in his mind, and I thought this was a call-out moment, he was like, he speaks to Brienne in his mind here. And he's like, well, be grateful my lies spared you, wench. And I'm like, Jamie, she's not there. I mean, she is. She's on your mind, but she's not there. She can't hear you. Yeah, she definitely can. Yeah, I, I forgot that was an interesting call out with the honorable amount for a night. And J- as you said, Brienne is a woman, so maybe it seems more than that. But Jamie doesn't even think of that. Oh, interesting amount for a woman. He thinks, oh, for a knight. Because in his mind, he's already starting to think like, yeah, Brienne's a knight, duh. Kyburn makes some gross joke saying that if her maidenhead is as hard as the rest of her, the goat will break his cock off trying to get in. Ew. And Jamie thinks she's tough enough to survive, but will Vargo Hote chop off her limbs if she resists too much? But then he stops and thinks, why should I care? Thinking that if she had just given him Cleos's sword, none of this would have happened. Why should I care? Because you love her. My god. Yeah, he does. And that's actually why. Because, like, he starts getting weird, right? When it's talk of Brienne's maidenhead. And not only is it because he's, like, worried about her, but there's a, there's something in the language that makes you think, like, are you jealous, Jamie? Are you jealous, like, about the maidenhead? Uh <laughs> yeah, a little the bit, answer. I feel the like. answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Kyburn is actually starting to get on Jamie's nerves, unsurprisingly. So Jamie's like, "Fuck this," and heads to the front of the column. He's like, "I'm going to talk to someone else now," and <laughs> <laughs> gets just behind the Northman Nage, who's been carrying a peace banner. It's a rainbow stripes, though. Interestingly, with with seven long tails and a seven pointed star to top it off. And Jamie's like, that's kind of weird. Asks Steelshanks, why are the Northmen carrying like a new gods based flag in the South? And Steelshanks, it's like, so that we can get safe Southern peace and passage through the lands. Duh. Duh. <laughs> Duh. Please tell me you're not only pretty, Jamie. God. Jamie wonders if his father had received the ransom for him and if his hand had made it there as well. Big Ram- Ramsey vibes. And then Jamie thinks... What is a swordman worth without his sword hand? Half the gold in Casterly Rock? 300 dragons? Or nothing? Again, Jamie thinking on how much he is worth monetarily, like a product. He thinks about his father and also about how not sentimental Tywin is. Understatement of the century. (laughs) Right? And his mind goes to the tar box when his grandfather, Titus, imprisoned an unruly sworn lord. Lady Tarbeck had responded to this by kidnapping three Lannisters, including young Stafford, Joanna Lannister's brother. Lady Tarbeck sent ransom for her lord, swearing the three boys would come to harm if he isn't returned. Titus, though, was too soft, let them go, and... 
Tywin later saw his vengeance, of course. Jamie thinks, Now you have a cripple for a son, as well as a dwarf, my lord. How you will hate that. I think there's such a big part of this chapter, and this bit in A Storm of Swords in general for Jamie, where, and I guess it's something we explore kind of in Arya chapters with Catelyn a little bit too, but when Jamie gets home, all he can think is, would my dad have even wanted me? Jamie feels worthless without his sword hand, but of course it turns out Jamie is kind of that special golden child to Tywin, right? And the only one that dad kind of would even think about setting bail for. And the one safe bet that Jamie thought he had, Cersei, is actually the problem here when he gets back. Yeah, she's the one who's like, I don't know if I want you. After all. <laughs> yeah. Number of reasons. They go through a burnt village first, though. It's roofless, the weeds are waist high, and Jamie once more remembers coming through this place. There had this time been a dark-eyed serving girl giving him cheese and apples, and the innkeep had actually refused the king's guard's money, saying, oh, no, I can't do that. This is amazing. Saying that he's, like, going to tell his grandchildren the story for years to come. But, of course, a lot of other things happened in those other years to come, and now Jamie wonders if... Did that innkeep ever get those grandchildren? And did he tell them that the Kingslayer drank his ale and ate his cheese? Or was he, like, too ashamed to? I mean, what would you do? I would tell him. I don't know if, like, I wouldn't be ashamed. I don't know if I would tell them that, like, it was the Kingslayer or not. But I would, uh, probably. That just makes the story better, <laughs> right? Right. J- but Jamie, of course, like, it is a story. He's thinking of himself in the context of those legends and stories. But obviously, he sees himself as more of, like, an infamous figure, as the villain, He's kind of not wrong. He's just, like, not wrong about the wrong thing. He's kind of more of a villain for, like, (laughs) throwing the kid out the window, not that. Yeah. Steel Shanks, back to Walton. He mentions stopping and staying at this place, but Jamie urges them on. He dislikes this place. They follow through the woods. His stump is throbbing, and they set up camp elsewhere. Kyburn brings dream wine to Jamie, and Jamie gratefully props up his bearskin against a stump at the fire. He remembers Brienne telling him to eat before he goes to sleep, to stay strong, but he can't fight it off. He hopes he dreams of Cersei, but instead of just dreaming of Cersei, a fever dream erupts. I would like to say that, to be honest, he does kind of dream of Cersei. He got kind of his wish. Kind of. I'm also thinking... Is there, like, a sort of wordplay thing going on here, right? We all know now that Jamie slept against, like, a stump. And he has a stump now. Is that, like, a thing mm. that's being played with? I don't know. Anyway, this dream, as goes with most dreams, where you find yourself feeling vulnerable and uncomfortable, Jamie is naked. And also, just like other naked, uncomfortable dreams, Jamie is surrounded by enemies, but... In my perspective, everyone feels a little bit like an enemy when you're the only naked person in the dream and you're not supposed to be. That's just how I feel about that. It's a classic dream. It is classic. Uh, and I think that's you know a testament, of course, to George's ability to write so realistically. And we have this quote that I actually really like. The rock, he knew. He could feel the immense weight of it above his head. He was home, he was home and whole. He held his right hand up and flexed his fingers to feel the strength in them. It felt as good as sex. As good as swordplay. 
Four fingers and the thumb. He had dreamed that he was maimed, but it wasn't so. Relief made him dizzy. My hand. My good hand. Nothing could hurt him so long as he was whole. Uh, part of why I also called out this quote is, we've talked about it before, especially in the episode with Jean, and the, uh, that that was a big one for us because we felt that the, the fighting scene, right, is in many ways characterized as a sex scene but here we kind of get that a little explicitly with jamie saying it felt as good as sex as good as swordplay the two are so equated for him yeah that's a great call out good call i didn't even think about that jamie asks the dozen robed hooded figures who they are and why they are at casterly rock unsurprisingly they do not answer him but poke him with spears instead so he descends and wonders wait i need to go up because he knows that if he keeps going down, something bad awaits him. He tries to stop, but they continue pushing him with their spears, and Jamie longs for a sword. Finally, he stops in a large, dark cavern with water, and the shadows explain what this is. Your place, the voice echoed. It was a hundred voices, a thousand, the voices of all the Lannisters since Land the Clever who'd lived at the dawn of days. But most of all, it was his father's voice, and beside Lord Tywin stood his sister, pale and beautiful, a torch burning in her hand. Joffrey was there as well, the son they'd made together, and behind them a dozen more dark shapes with golden hair. Sister, why has father brought us here? Us? This is your place, brother. This is your darkness. Her torch was the only light in the cavern. Her torch was the only light in the world. She turned to go. Stay with me, Jamie pleaded. Don't leave me here alone. But they were leaving. Don't leave me in the dark. Something terrible lived down here. Give me a sword, at least. I gave you a sword, Lord Tywin said. It was at his feet. Jamie groped under the water until his hand closed upon the hilt. Nothing can hurt me so long as I have a sword. There's a, there's a lot of good stuff in this fever dream. This whole goddamn chapter is good. Fever dreams, in, yeah, this whole chapter, fever dreams in general. <sighs> there's a lot, I think, in this one moment. And honestly, that last line, I think, is the core of Jamie's character. The nothing can hurt me so long as I have a sword. Well, up until this point, I feel like it's his version of Tyrion's, you know, armor yourself and what you are and no one can use it against you kind of thing. Jamie has, like, allowed himself to be defined as a sword hand. We see, like, over and over throughout his chapters and as a knight, even though he's, like, not one that sticks to that chivalric code. And it's just, like, not that no one could hurt him physically because he was such a good fighter, right, until, you know this all happened but so long as he was extremely really good competent at this one thing that every boy dreams of being no one could judge him like so long as he was a good sword hand you know he could be a good knight he could be a good lannister he could be the king's guard right like big dreams they're all legends and no one could question his ability even if they could question his morals and i think that was important to him ever especially because he was like oh my ability didn't get me into the king's guard apparently and like it raises another question for me, though, some of the other things in this dream. Because, like, he's surrounded by all of these Lannisters past, going back to Land the Clever. And the ones who are here, it's quite interesting because Joffrey's included. We know Joffrey dies in a few chapters. 
And Tywin's also included. We also know he dies in a few chapters in this book. And Cersei's down here. She's prophesied to die. Mm. And it's telling him that his place, like that beneath the rock is his place. But then they all kind of leave him. I don't know what that part means. But like the rest of the dream kind of reminds me also of like John and his dreams of the crypts beneath Winterfell calling to him. That's a really good thought, and I don't know if maybe it's some sort of foreshadowing too, like you said, but it is also something reminiscent of Cersei's uh, vision Mm. visuals when she goes through her walk of shame. When she starts getting like guilt-focused on certain people, it kind of reminds me of that. So it does make me think that those that are specifically seen are uh, very much so doomed, so that's interesting. The sword lights a fire. Silvery blue, but it doesn't reach Jamie. Also, he has boots now, because it's a dream. That can happen. So he's not entirely naked. It totally does. But now the boots are wet and cold, and he's telling himself to beware the water, which may have things in it, dark things in the water. Okay, we can't not do this whole quote, Eliana. We have to do this whole quote. We have to do this whole quote. It's, It's written too well to not. From behind came a great splash. Jamie whirled toward the sound, but the faint light revealed only Brienne of Tarth, her hands bound in heavy chains. I swore to keep you safe, the wench said stubbornly. I swore an oath. Naked, she raised her hands to Jamie. Sir, please, if you would be so good. The steel links parted like silk. A sword, Brienne begged. There it was, scabbard, belt, and all. She buckled it around her thick waist. The light was so dim that Jamie could scarcely see her, though they stood scant a few feet apart. In this light, she could almost be a beauty, he thought. In this light, she could almost be a knight. Brienne's sword took flame as well, burning silvery blue. The darkness retreated a little more. So first quick side note, because I just can't resist. Uh, because this is who I am. Like, the steel links parting like silk feels a little bit like, is, is it a metaphor about, like, undressing? It's also an interesting reversal, considering yes. that before, as Jamie thinks often, he was the one who was in chains, and he's like, can't someone break my fucking chains, please? And <laughs> it's, like, totally please. an obvious emotion thing, really, when you think about it, that he's the one always in chains. So it's like, obviously, at this point, she wants to be in chains. You know, it's like a sex thing. It's a power thing. Yeah. But now she's not. Because Jamie's like, and he's like ramming right. it in her. What? Oh, whoa, no! I'm he's, sorry, he Jamie's gentle. A bottom. I'm sorry, baby. Yeah, he's about a bottom. I mean, right now, <laughs> apparently not. Yeah. Well, anyways, he's, he's like, you know what? Yeah, let's not do the chains thing. Uh, also, as you said, anyways, I love this connection and juxtaposition there of G- Brienne looking both like a beauty in the slate, but also a knight. Uh, I don't love that, like, in a few lines, Jamie's like, oh, she looks more womanly shaped or whatever here. Because I don't think it's really about that. It's all, like, in his head, it's a dream, whatever. But it's more that just Brienne being true to herself with a sword and confident that she could be both beautiful and a knight. That a woman could embody both when they're allowed to own the things that they enjoy and are good at and want, I, I just find it to be just very powerful language in a scene that he doesn't choose one. He's like, in this light, she's both. Yeah, I think that's very powerful, but I do want to ruin it for a second because today when I read this, all I could think was like, 
One of you has thrown children out of a tower, Jamie. That's true. In my head, I was like, Jamie, how are you going to dictate what a night should look like? Even in your fucking fever dream? Go the fuck to bed, Jamie. Go to bed. I mean, Loki, he kind of thinks of her as one. That's why he's like, oh, yeah, that's a good price for a night. Maybe. Kind of. In a way. It's like that episode of Broad City where Alana dates the girl that looks just like her. We've already talked about this. Yes. Oh, we did. We do it. God damn it. We did. It's just, it's all I think about when I think of Jamie and Brienne. We don't even have to finish the Jamie chapters really at this point. It's just, there's a kind of irony there though when I think about it that you say that it reminds you of Jamie and Brienne and not of Jamie and Cersei. Have you thought about that? Isn't that that kind of weird? It's like finding someone more like you than just like what your blood's coated. Is this like how before this episode you're like, I know you, Eliana. I know you better than you know yourself. You know, one of my buddies, the the friend I call Little Tot affectionately, we always yes. joke we're going to Freaky Friday someday. Oh. And, like, there's no details besides we just always say we're going to Freaky Friday someday. We're just going to do it. So, I mean, maybe that's what it is. We don't know. Maybe Anyways. It is. Cersei warns Jamie that when the fire goes out, he does too. It only lasts as long as he does. Also vice versa. And yeah. somewhere George is fucking singing this little light of mine. This little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine. Jamie asks Cersei to stay, but he hears her leave. He thinks Brienne looked just as tall and strong as he remembered, and more womanly shaped. Hmm. Mm. Then Brienne wonders if there's a bear down here, out loud. She also wonders if there's a cave lion, dire wolves, and then again, back to a bear. But Jamie is edgy and replies, doom. Obviously, this is part of, like, you know, the part in the dreams in general, people's dreams, where you're like, oh subtext from real life and how they've been like surrounded by Lannisters and Starks and navigating these lands this whole time. Yeah, Sansa says it too, right? Yeah. Tyrion says like, a deer surrounded by and she whispers, she's like, lions. And Tyrion's like, bold that you would say that aloud to me. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Brienne offers to let Jaime climb on her shoulders to reach the edge of the tunnel. (laughs) Yeah. And he thinks he'd be able to return to Cersei, and he starts getting a chub as he thinks about it, then tries to hide it. And then in the darkness, something's coming for them, and it's two riders. I I resisted, but you know what? I actually can't resist. Brienne, like, makes language. She's like, something's coming, and I'm like, it's Jamie. Uh, but then... <laughs> I'm sorry. Jamie's like, that's weird that they're riders, because, you know, like, we're underground and all. And then Jamie thinks it's Ned and then calls out, but more quiet riders come and they're all armored in snow. Five had been his brothers, Oswell Went and John Derry, Lewin Martell, a Prince of Dorne, the White Bull, Gerald Hightower, Sir Arthur Dane, Sword of the Morning, and beside them, crowned in mist and grief with his long hair streaming behind him, rode Rhaegar Targaryen, Prince of Dragonstone and rightful heir, to the Iron Throne. I like Interesting. How, I like how we had that uh, detailed the long hair streaming behind him. You know, I do too, but I guess I never really noticed that Jamie felt that Rhaegar was the rightful heir. Like, right that in there. Like, that he, like that to hmm. me, the way he thinks that, like, yes, Rhaegar was the heir, but, like, the rightful heir, that means that Jamie thought 
Rhaegar should have been it. Should have been king. Which we know. Yeah. We know, and we'll hear more about. But that's interesting that, like, there was no question. It's almost like Jamie feels more guilt towards Rhaegar than to Ares or something. Well, this dream says that, obviously. Obviously. I mean, it's pretty obvious, yeah. Jamie's like, come at me, bro! Makes a quip of, like, oh, but I can take you all, but then who's gonna fight Brienne? She needs attention, too. And Brienne's like, wait, hold on. I will protect you. And she reiterates, I swore a holy oath. And Arthur Dane is like, yeah, all of us fucking did. Why do you think we're in this dream? <laughs> in this moment? <laughs> And Jamie tries to explain what happened, and everyone's like, mm, nah, he was your king, bruh. And then Rhaegar also starts guilt-tripping him about his wife and kids, and then everyone just goes through it all again and starts guilt-tripping Jamie again. And we have then this line that closes the dream with, The fires that ran along the blade were guttering out, and Jamie remembered what Cersei had said. No! Terror closed a hand about his throat, then his sword went dark, and only Brienne's burned as the ghosts came rushing in. Finally, Jamie wakes screaming no! Just a whole lot. Obviously. <laughs> There's so much to note about this fever dream. I'm glad you broke up some of the stuff in the middle. Something important to note, pretty sure this is a weirwood stump, as many have discovered before me. Mm. The moonlight glimmered pale upon the stump where Jamie had rested his head. The moss covered it so thickly he had not noticed before, but now he saw that the wood was white. I think that explains a lot of stuff happening here. The guilt is all Jamie's subconscious, right? We know that. Jamie didn't need the weirwood to tell him that, but I think a lot of the stuff to do with the others is probably important here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the way that we also see these ghosts appear to his life feels like immense foreshadowing for fighting others in the north we get this line in this about what they look like yet there came two riders on pale horses men in mounts both armored the destriers emerged from the blackness at a slow walk they make no sound jamie realized no splashing no clink of mail nor clop of hoof they were armored in all in snow, it seemed to him, and ribbons of mist swirled back from their shoulders. So this, and then if you compare this to Waymar Royce in the prologue of A Game of Thrones, a shadow emerged from the dark of the wood. It stood in front of Royce. Tall it was, and gaunt and hard as old bones, with flesh pale as milk. Its armor seemed to change color as it moved. Here it was, white as new-fallen snow, there, black as shadow, everywhere dappled with the deep gray-green of the trees. Yeah, and the, uh, we're also told, right, that the others move very silently. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot of connections between their portrayals there. Yeah, I feel like there are bits and pieces of that weirwood stump definitely seeping in, especially when we discuss the mist here. Mm. Uh, that he saw mist, which is an obvious signifier of Bloodraven, as we've talked about. But there's also kind of this thing about the shades of Rhaegar here. Rhaegar is displayed in a couple different colors. First, we see Rhaegar in a white shade, then he turns red, and then he turns black. An obvious kind of nod to the three heads of the dragon, but also kind of a three shades of Jamie hmm. thing, right? White is the first shade that Rhaegar turns, which is kind of like the Kingsguard, and you get the red 
that is much like the Lannister red and also the Aerys's blood red. Mm. And then black, which could be him divorcing the Lannister name. And if you combine that with some of the Brienne imagery we get in this with her flaming sword, she's the only thing keeping Jamie from the darkness in this dream. And she's also in the middle between him and his family, which kind of signifies that he's very much so making a choice right after this and returning to Harrenhal. Uh, putting these all together, he's already embodied that Kingsguard role. By the end of Feast, he is embodying that Lannister role fully, trying to do the least damage that he can, emphasis on trying. And his role to come in the War for the Dawn seems like it could be important, but his sword's light going out first definitely makes me wonder if that black shade of Rhaegar means that Jamie divorcing his family doesn't just mean him going north. It means maybe he could die. Uh, also noteworthy is, of course, Brienne's later fever dream in A Feast for Crows. She could not fight without her magic sword. Sir Jamie had given it to her. The thought of failing him as she had failed Lord Renly made her want to weep. My sword, please, I have to find my sword. There's there's just a lot of things in this dream, and as you said, doesn't mean that he dies. Part of the dream seems to imply that greatly. But Yeah. But I mean it could be like, like he's gonna. Yeah, but also it could be that it probably. Could also be like death of what, Jamie Lannister? Enter X other new life person, right? Like you've seen that a couple of times in this story. But will it be? I don't know. Probably not. But also, you know, that I like that you hauled out Brienne is what's keeping the darkness at bay because it's not just like a darkness, right? It's described as it's Jamie's darkness. It's like the darkness within his own heart of who he is and all those terrible choices that he's made, like Brienne helping be that guiding light. But as you were saying, you know, as we were saying, like, maybe it means he's gonna die. That line of terror gripping his throat as that happens and Brienne's light remaining, it kind of also reminds me of how Cersei's prophecy regarding the Valonqar goes of, like, wrapping the Valonqar's hands around her throat, so... Though I also don't know that George came up with the Valonqar stuff until much later. I think that was something that was gardened a little. My understanding from some of Jen Snow's readings of earlier versions of those chapters before they were finally published in Feast mm -hmm. is some of them don't include some of those references to that prophecy. But who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Awake, Jamie realizes that he has no hand once more on that arm. I felt it. I felt the strength in my fingers and the rough leather of my sword's grip. My hand. Kyburn and Steelshanks are like, yo, you aight, bro? <laughs> Jamie's like, it was a dream. But he feels sick as he sees his stump again. He refuses more dream wine from Kyburn and definitely says no to the milk of the poppy. He realizes he had been sleeping on that weirwood stump. He thinks of Ned and thinks it couldn't have been him. Ned's dead, like Rhaegar and Arthur and the kids. And, of course, he thinks, like Ares. Yeah, he's like, Ares is the deadest of them all. But coming back to some of what you were saying last episode, but thanks to uh, that answer from Quora, it's fascinating <laughs> that, until Ares, 
the people that Jamie is thinking of are Ned, and he's putting Ned in like the same category in vain, right? As people like Rhaegar and Arthur, Dane. Because in the dream he just had, Jamie, his first like fear is like, oh shit, the riders are Ned Stark, he's coming again. But instead, it's actually like his Kingsguard brothers, and it feels a lot like. It almost feels like Ned Stark is what? Jamie's biggest fear? And it's not because yeah. he's like afraid of fighting Ned. Like, I do think. I'm going to throw it out there. I don't think it's that controversial an opinion, but for some reason, if someone thinks it is, in a fight between Jamie Lannister and Ned Stark, <laughs> Jamie would win. Like, that's oh, no shit. the whole point. But, like, even in death, Jamie's so afraid of Ned, and I think that it's because deep down, obviously, like, Jamie admires him in a way or respects him. That's why he thinks of him in that same category. He puts him in, like, the same breath as Rhaegar and Arthur, all of them are gone. These men that he thought of as good and honorable, pe- men that he like respected, maybe inspired to, depending on who they are, gone. Ned judged Jamie before even knowing or trying to understand his point of view, and because that it makes his like approval forever unattainable, and and that's part of why Jamie's like fuck it, fuck it, I don't need your approval, Ned Stark. But deep down inside, there he's still holding on to that. You know, it reminds me a lot of the relationship between Ben Solo and Luke Skywalker in the hit film, Rise of Skywalker. I'm so mad. Or whatever. You know, just like Bloodraven and Euron. Okay, yes. That one, yes. Anyway, so as he thinks, he asks Kyburn if he believes in ghosts. Wait, wait, wait. And- can I come back to one more? Yes. Um... What is the name? The tiger. The tiger and the small red panda and kung fu panda. I thought you were going to talk about the stupid tiger show and I was going to be like, Eliana, fuck you. I haven't seen it yet. I meant- I, I don't care about it. Talking about kung fu panda and that is important. I will not be swayed. I don't know what to tell you. You've watched kung fu panda, right? A long time ago. Oh my god. We can come back to this episode, I guess, now that I'm just like disappointed. <laughs> As he thinks, he asks Kyburn if he believes in ghosts. I actually love this quote, so we're going to do it. Kyburn yes. responds, Once at the Citadel, I came into an empty room and saw an empty chair. Yet I knew a woman had been there only a moment before. The cushion was dented where she'd sat, and the cloth was still warm, and her scent lingered in the air. If we leave our spells behind us when we leave a room, surely something of our souls must remain when we leave this life. He says that Marwyn felt the same, and Jamie's like, all right, cool. Thanks for that insightful answer, whoever the fuck Marwyn is. Uh, just kidding. He doesn't. He he tells him to get the horses, but he doesn't we respond at all is. to it. Yeah, he's just like, okay, whatever, weirdo. Uh, high ass bitch. How much fucking crack did you smoke this morning, Kyburn? Yeah, you sure you're um, not taking that dream wine? <laughs> yeah, right. How much milk of the poppy are you on? But we do know who Marwyn is, since this is a reread podcast. If you don't remember, we get a glimpse of Marwyn in a couple different places. As early as Game of Thrones, Daenerys 7, when we learn that Marwyn met Miri Mazdur and taught her the common tongue and about the human body, and then all the way up to A Feast for Crows, Kraken's daughter, Roderick the Reader, he's reading the Book of Lost Books, which was written by Archmaester Marwyn. In it, Marwyn claims he has three pages of the legendary Signs Importance Long Lost, which was authored by Daenys Targaryen, Daenys the Dreamer. Yes. Marwyn's going to be 
I'm interested. Not one of my favorite parts, but I'm definitely looking forward to it. A lot of people are really looking forward to more Marwin. More, I mean, he's Marwin? been planning him for so long. I think that's what's important. He's yeah, always known that Marwin was going to be a guide of Daenerys. We should call him more when okay that's hmm. the side note but yeah absolutely so it it's we've been getting sprinkles of him till finally here he is in dance and i don't know like on one hand you're like oh kyvern that's some weird shit that you're saying but it's just like written really nicely and that's why i wanted to call it out i'm like wow kyvern who knew you were so sensitive with all the weird shit that you do and <laughs> On one hand, like, this is a fantasy story, so yeah, ghosts could probably actually very much be real, especially because we have ice zombies in the north, and then in this very same book, we see a bunch of people coming back to life, like Beric and later on Lady Stoneheart. So uh, there seems to be an argument that, yes, something of this life must linger if there's something to be returned back to people's bodies, right? But, like, on a different level, this answer by Kyburn that maybe the souls that remain in this life as Jamie sees in his dream, I think that you could argue it's just as much about this idea of legacy. We talk about it especially in regards to the Starks of how much people respected Ned and therefore are willing to fight for him where they are not willing to do it for Tywin. Like, so much of Tywin's, what he's built, falls apart upon his death. But Ned left that behind. He left behind his children, who all aspire to ex- his example. They think upon him, strive to be like him. Even though we know that Ned had a lot of his flaws upon a reread. I guess Tywin has that ghost, too, and it haunts Tyrion, especially. Jon Snow has the lessons that he learned from, like, his 20,000 other dads. And, like, in a way, that's their soul carrying through, remaining in his life. And Jamie has all those legends and the ghosts of the men that he was trying to live up to. And, of course, the mothers and children of House Targaryen that are dead that he's shouldering this guilt for, that he feels they failed, he's failed, he's wrestling with those ghosts. And, I don't know, I think a big part of the story, of course, right, is, like, what kind of soul is Jamie going to leave behind? Yeah, I think that's something that's so poetic in that upcoming scene we'll get someday with the White Book. Uh, yeah. I can't wait for that chapter. That's a great chapter. But it's coming up. Legacy, right? Like, the Lannisters spend so much time living up to what is our legacy, but Jamie now has to live up to something harder, something worse, which is himself. Who's Jamie? Yeah. He's got to light up his own little darkness. Yeah. yeah. Well, allegedly, Jamie's left something back at Harrenhal. Yeah. And he's Fuck like, we can do this. Shit. We have time. Like, I know you think we don't have time. It's cutting the schedule close, but we can do it. And Steel Shanks is like, yo, I have to deliver you. And we have this line, once Jamie might have countered with a smile and a threat, but one-handed cripples do not inspire much fear. He wondered what his brother would do. Tyrion would find a way. Lannister's lies, Steel Shanks. Didn't Lord Bolton tell you that? The man the- frowned suspiciously. What if he did? I just love that Jamie threatens to, like, tell lies about his father then in this moment about, like, who took his hand off to coerce everyone into, like, his plan and money and that he's now just, like, what would Tyrion do? And I think this is very much, this this is a very t- channeling Tyrion Lannister moment. Yeah, and it does say something about the upbringing, right, that Jamie immediately thinks, what would Tyrion do in this moment? What am I doing wrong? Uh, and Steel Shanks, of course, is like, I like money, okay. And 
It does make me wonder, Steel Shanks was introduced right as that soldier type like we discussed with Iron Loyalty, and Jamie made these assumptions about him, of what he would do, you know, if his lord commanded him to do it, that he would do it, murder, rape, etc. But then that he would go home after war and make a family, and it makes me wonder if they both are missing the point about soldiers and small folk, and that maybe, maybe Steel Shanks betrays Roos in the end for money from someone or something. I don't know. He'll probably get eaten by, like, a white giant, but it just makes me wonder if something's going to happen with Steel Shanks. Steel Shanks, the railway cat. <laughs> he doesn't get chosen to go to the heavy side layer, and so Jamie and gang push harder than ever before, making it back to Heron Hall by midday, and now there's, like, a whole thing with the Black Goat of Kohor, Adorning Heron Hall, you got like really like hellish vibes with Heron Hall, which is like right now, but also always. I was gonna say, I'm like, wasn't that already the aesthetic? Yeah, weren't they always goth? Yes. Yeah, I thought Heron Hall was already goth with all the bats <laughs> and shit. Yes. Jamie yells, he's like, open the door, and then no one's listening, so. Kyburn and Seal Shanks are also like, oh my fucking god. And they start yelling too, and finally someone's like, oh, there are people? And they open the gate thinking like, oh, it's Jamie Lannister, our ally. And Jamie internally is like, why the fuck would you even think that? Why would you think we are friends? <laughs> he can hear laughter coming from the yard, and he's afraid that it's too late. He gallops hard into the flowstone yard where Brienne is being held in the bear pit. Because yes, a bear pit is a thing that King Heron the Black was into. The stadium is not full, but it is still a thing. Yes, Brienne is actually still in the dress she wore the other night to supper, and she has been given no armor. Her left arm is now bleeding. And at least she has a sword, Jamie's like, alright, at least she's got that. But as she's fighting, she's afraid to close the distance and jamie's like that's pretty weird because if she could just do it like she's got good skill right she should be able to kill the bear and seal shanks is like jamie what the fuck are we doing here we need to leave uh just leave the wench and jamie's like no her name is brienne and i love her but he actually only says the first part the second part he says with his eyes uh, instead, he calls the Lord Vargo to pull brienne out and Vargo is like mm, no I thought it was something important to pull out that Vargo is nursing his ear here. It's bandaged because Brienne Mike Tysoned him when he tried to assault her. Yes. Which is totally apt because of what happens in A Feast for Crows, right? Where her face is ripped off by, quote unquote, the hound, biter. And I think that's something else strong about these arcs in general, that Jamie comes back here for Brienne in this moment because he's growing as a person in his time with her. Like, earlier, he has that line, he was anxious to be gone to put Hall and all of this behind him. A real woman waited for him in the Red Keep. But now he's spending all of his chapters thinking about Cersei, but we know why he's thinking about Cersei. We just got the explanation that he's been dissociating and projecting his trauma onto Cersei from the start, pretty much. His relationship mm -hmm. with her is idealized and soon learns things aren't really what they seen with her his relationship and his experiences that he's had with Brienne that growing conscience that he's been feeling to do what's right is what's real uh, he's lived these real things they are very real things and what he lived with Cersei was toxic and a band-aid for his deeper hurt yeah she was escapism mm -hmm. now he has to actually deal he and here he is 
dealing with real ass things because of Brienne. For example, here's a bear that Jamie actually thinks of as a hairy, smarter Gregor Clegane. That's more or less actually the quote. <laughs> He's internally like rooting Brienne, like, yes, now, you can do it now, get the bear! But she's not going for it aggressively. And for now, actually, neither is the bear, since it's fought other humans before and knows what swords do to it, which is super sad. And honestly, in general, with the bear pit, I'm not sure how I missed this until now on this reread, and I'm sure someone else has talked about it before, but like, everything about the bear pit from Brienne fighting in it, like fighting this much larger enemy, similar height to Gregor Clegane, and and that difficulty of closing that distance. Um, the performance of it, right, and being trapped in a pit, it's a setup for that fight that we're going to see later on in this book between Oberyn Martell and Gregor Clegane. Oberyn is able to do that everything mm-hmm. that Brienne cannot because he's planned for it. He's brought a spear, of course, partially because that's like typical <laughs> of the Dornish, but anyways, and he also actually has a real weapon. Anyway, and yeah, yeah, he still dies. Also, right. side note, this is gonna be covered in like an upcoming that that upcoming Maester Monthly, but there's this great comment on Reddit from user 3Q2HB comparing Penny and Brienne's roles and the stories of Tyrion and Jamie respectively. Oh. Um and it made me think of Penny being forced to perform fights and almost being thrown into that mine pit. You know, like how Brienne's in one here. Uh yeah. but bears and that that's all. That's all I got. No, that's very smart. That's a really apt kind of comparison because they both also pull both of these men out of a deep horrible depression or not we'll see right we don't know the truth yet but back in the bear pit Brienne cannot hear Jamie yelling kill him as Brienne is fighting the bear Jamie's like where is the blood but then he realizes oh she has a tourney sword he says suddenly just like frantically to the goat that he'll pay whatever, so long as she's taken out of the pit. And the goat says, You want her? Go get her. So he did. <sighs> the most romantic lines of, like, anything. A lot of them are in this chapter. Like, two, Romance, at l- the music, very least. rose petals. Yeah, pretty much. You want her? Go get her. So he did. Cue running yeah, montage. Ugh. Brienne is obviously surprised that uh, Jamie's here. She's a Kingslayer. He corrects her with just Jamie, and you know this is the buddy rom com banter that we love, but in a bear pit, the most romantic of settings. Then they fight about who is protecting whom once more. That rom com banter that you love. Jamie finds a jawbone in the ground. Romance. It's covered in maggot. Hurls it at the bear. Misses. Romance. Turns out your non-dominant hand is hard to aim with. And then at some point, Jamie straddles Brienne. Mm. Hmm. 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 You know, in a way, this also is kind of, you know, earlier during that fever dream, I was discussing the others in that dream. But this is also kind of a mirror exactly of what is going to happen against the others. I know I was very poetic earlier about it, but... This is like half fucking, half fighting, grabbing jaws. This is great. This is quality. Yeah. Though I will say, the others did not consent to having to be part of this and witnessing this act of public sex. Well, the bodies that they stole didn't consent either, but here we are. That's true. Absolutely. 
Sit the fuck down, Eliana. <laughs> Heroes then start flying into the bear, uh, thanks to Steel Shanks and gang coming up in the rear, and the bear actually starts dying, and it's super sad. Uh... Yeah, it's, it's actually kind of super sad. Yeah, because like the bear's also been forced to do this and has clearly been like, I wanted no part of this. <laughs> I've done nothing yeah. wrong other than what I was forced to do as a bear in a pit. Shout out to Steel Shanks though, um, because I don't know, maybe just easily bought to Jamie's side, but or morally a softy, but here he is helping. Yeah. Steel Surprised. Shanks. So Jamie gets out with Brienne. The bloody mummers are ready to fight. Vargo Hode is pissed about the bear being dead. Steel Shanks is making threats, especially because, you know, we stop for a bloody wench. And Jamie's like, that wench's name is Brienne? And then also he turns to Brienne and he's like, you are still a maiden, right? Because I only rescue maidens, toots. That's actually practically the line also. And it's a great meta quip. Because, you know, as as we all know, we're de- deconstructing knighthood here. <laughs> Rorge calls for blood when Jamie says, Alright, it's fine, I'm going to pay the ransom. Hoke considers doing the fight, but then realizes, Wait, a bunch of my men are drunk, also we're outnumbered. And he's like, I have chosen to be birthful. Tell your lord father. <laughs> That's actually literally the line. And Jamie's like, sure, Jan. Yeah, he's like, I'll just let my hand do the talking. And he's like, just kidding, because your people chopped it off, asshole. Ha ha ha. He's like, how can um, you even think I'm gonna, like gonna be your friend and be on your side after all this Fargo? Like, what a dingus. Like, I can't grow a fucking hand. It's like you really, you really thought I was gonna go to Lord Tywin Lannister and be like, yeah, that guy was merciful. Bitch, you thought. <laughs> so they're half a league from Harrenhal. Finally, Steel Shanks is verbally laying into Jamie and being like, "Did you mean to die back there? No one can fight a bear with bare hands." That's actually almost pretty much practically the line. That That is literally a joke that is made pretty much, more, more or less. Yeah, because Jamie then back is like, actually, I only have one hand. And then he's like, but I do have the right to bear arms. Mm-mm. Nobody I'll told go. me. Yeah. He's like, Fargo Ho didn't say I could bring the gun show. Here he is, flexing. <sighs> he uh, was counting on Steel Shanks being afraid of Bolton, though. So that's interesting. And mm-hmm. then we get some even bigger moments because Steel Shanks kind of huffs off. He's a drama queen. Khaleesi. Well, that is also a Tyrion kind of move, you know? Yeah. You're like counting on that. And then we, we get this great ending, right? Where Sir Jamie, even in spoiled pink satin and torn lace, Brienne looked more like a man in the gown than a proper woman. I am grateful, but you were well away. Why come back? A dozen quips came to mind, each crueler than the one before, but Jamie only shrugged. I dreamed of you, he said. <sighs> Tale as old as time. Bah, 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 bah. I know we brought it up with Jean when we had fangirl Jean on about how Jamie and Brienne kind of reminds me of Taming of the Shrew and, of course, 10 Things I Hate About You. Really hardcore. And I've been thinking about it. And this chapter made me think that Cersei is very much framed as that Bianca-esque character, right, in many ways. And Brienne is kind of framed as a Kate. Uh, Bianca is, of course, 
Uh, the outer eye sees Bianca as like a doting, docile wife. But when we get the closer look on who she is in the play, she is actually disobedient. Kind of awful, but we can't blame her on a lot of that. Just saying. Uh, some of the stuff with Bianca's suitors does feel a little bit like what George did with Brienne's suitors. But Kate, at first look, kind of looks to be awful to the audience. She won't submit. She won't marry. And Petruchio sees this very much as a challenge. And there are these two bits from the, the play. Act 3, scene 2. I see a woman may be made a fool if she had not a spirit to resist. In Brienne's case, maybe she would say a wench. Yeah, he would definitely say a wench until he's like, hmm. <laughs> and Petruchio does, right? Act five, scene one, Petruchio says, why, there's a wench. Come on and kiss me, Kate. Of course, one of the most classic lines. So kiss me, Kate. I don't remember <laughs> the rest of the words to that song. Also, Bianca, and again, those are the only parts of those songs I know from the musical Kiss Me Kate. <laughs> yeah, that's about it for me too. You're not, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I feel like those parallels are like really loud. Absolutely, I I think that's such a great call that that's something that's being heralded here. Hopefully, it has like a way happier ending than Taming of the Shrew. Ten things I hate about you. Classic, right. amazing ending. Brilliant. Um, technically, I mean, if we're gonna go with what we're maybe being handed, don't you think like maybe Taming of the Shrew might be a little happier than a song get- of ice and fire? Um, which ending do you really think is gonna be happier for our heroes? So, Eliana? so this is my controversial. It's not that controversial because no one's ever brought it up for it to be controversy. But now it is. Let's go. <laughs> now it, that was about to be a controversial. <laughs> opinion. Okay, so I know that people read the ending of Taming of the Shrew in a couple of different ways. Like some people read it as like Kate and Petruchio are like in league with each other, and she's saying that at the end to like be in league with him, and uh, you know this whole monologue uh, to help like win the bet or something. And some people read it as her delivering it sarcastically, and people perform it in a lot of those different ways. I've also heard of some subversive um, castings of it where like they'll play around with the genders and how everything's portrayed. And of course, we all know that during Shakespeare's time when these plays would be performed, right? Like. Kate's role would be most of the time like a man playing the role of a woman delivering that same monologue but like I've also seen versions of it where it seems like what if it's delivered earnestly and it seems like Kate's just broken down right like mm-hmm. what she endures isn't great uh, as Petruchio like does his own thing true but like not at the hands of jamie in that same way right it's it's other things and i think so for me i'm like the 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 ending where brianne's not stripped of her agency is the better ending than that no absolutely (laughs) that's my opinion but like, 50% of them are going to die, so... But Brienne will be fine. <laughs> Thank I don't know. Maybe. Probably. Who knows? Hopefully. I don't know. Some, something has happened. That girl is making it to the end. If my girl Brienne doesn't make it to the end, I quit the podcast. Don't. We won't even, don't like, say know anything. for a while. Uh, you don't know that. 
Maybe we do. I don't know. Who knows? Now that we've moved well, to one guys, episode, one chapter. That was episode. Jamie Six. That was Jamie Six, Eliana. That was Jamie <laughs> Six. <laughs> that, was, that was Jamie Six, a storm of swords. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, you all. We really appreciated you all being here with us. And we can't wait to do Jamie 7. We're actually really rounding to the end of Storm of Swords so fast here. We actually are. Uh, there aren't that many Jamie chapters, I guess, in Storm. But of course, the if you want to be there with us for those chapters, subscribe to us on social media. You can find us at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter. Or maybe you, too, have questions for us. You can shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to us already on a platform where you listen to podcasts, we are on most of them. Check out Spotify, Google Play, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Acast, you name it. Hopefully we're there. Yeah, we're on a couple of things we don't even know. And of course, we do have a Patreon episode this month. It is going to be His Dark Materials about Once Upon a Time in the North, but Hey, maybe you haven't heard ours from March, where we covered Ty Roche, so all patrons $5 and up get our special episodes. Hopefully Ty Roche is only, like, the first, right, of a couple of episodes we do about the free cities? Yeah, if we don't do a full nine, we'll at least do the, the three. The three. Make, making <laughs> the eight. <laughs> Thanks again, all. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Chloe. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana, and in just... Five minutes, Chloe's going to turn 21 years old. Oh my god, I thought it was 20 earlier. You're aging by the minute. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Happy Bye. birthday, Chloe. Goodbye. <laughs>